Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, and as you're seated, turn your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning. And today we want to, as we look at origins, and you know, we see a lot of firsts happening here, and uh, today we see the first couple, first couple in God's creation of Eve. First, uh, Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 18 and read through verse 25. This is the word of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed this is the word of god the flower fades the grass withers but the word of our god stands forever would you pray with me heavenly father as we come to this text we just do pray god for the uh, that you would help us you would help us to understand this text, to apply this text, to bring it to bear upon our lives with whatever relationships that we find ourselves in. Father, in singleness, in marriage, Father, even as children, Father, that you would help us to see uh, what your uh, vision for companionship and relationships is, Father, that we can bring it to bear in the way that we interact and live married lives and anticipate the future. Father, reflect in the past. God, your grace covers all things that we need covered. It covers our sin and gives us hope. And so, Father, as we look at this passage, give us that hope as well, that we see your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had a job that uh, was too big to handle all by yourself? And then surprisingly, someone comes in, maybe at the last second, just to help so you can get that job finished. You know, one of the biggest loneliest jobs that, that, that I face can, can be moving. I mean, when we move from one place to another, maybe especially if it's one city to another city, um, you know, we know there's a lot of stuff to, to put on a truck or to put in a car. Um, we're leaving friends behind. We may not have as many uh, friends to help us to move. Maybe they're not happy we're moving or something. And then we move to a place and, you know, maybe there's, we don't know anybody there. We're making a new start, a new beginning. And then when somebody comes to help us to load or unload, what a relief that that is, right? Maybe, you've, maybe you're a student and you had a homework assignment and it seemed so tough and you just, you just couldn't do it and um, you're just staring at the page and thinking, I have no clue on how to do this. So you make that phone call, you arrange that study partner and then all of a sudden it begins to make sense and you have somebody to, to work together through those problems with. 
Or maybe it's a home repair that you need completing and you really have to do it before it starts raining. Otherwise, you know that you're going to have real problems and there's a storm coming in. You just don't know if you're going to finish on time. And then just in time, a friend offers to help even to finish that last step. Well, you know, if you've experienced any of those things or, or anything you needed help with that you might be able to relate with Adam as we come into our passage today. Where we left Adam last week, um, he was placed in the Garden of Eden and he was given a task by God to take this paradise and to work it and to keep it. We looked at those two requirements that were given to him then. And it's a wonderful place. It was a wonderful place that God put him. But there wasn't something, there was something that wasn't quite right. And so in our passage today, in Genesis 2.18, we see that it was too much for him to care for by himself. In fact, God says that it was not good for him to be alone. In other words, it was too much for Adam to do that work alone and to do the work alone. And so what God does is he brings Eve into his life to help him with this monumental task. You've known what a relief it is when somebody comes to you in a time of need. And today we want to look at God's solution for Adam's need. What did God do? He gave him a companion. He gave him a spouse. He brought him into a marriage. And we see a progression this year. We, we see this starting with, a, with something that needs to be done. But in the end, you see a relationship of genuine intimacy growing. So today we want to look at that importance of marriage for human flourishing. And it's interesting that as we get right here at the beginning of the Bible, you have a marriage. And it shows us something that's really important. It shows us how God established marriage as a bedrock of social order. And also as an important piece of individual flourishing. Now remember that the Bible was given to ancient Israel in a time um, like our own, in many ways. That, uh, in this case, for Israel, different nations had different views of marriage and sexuality. And they had different views of women. And if you take the time to look at different myths um, around the creation of women, which many held and build their own societies off of, you would uh, see that and some of them are not very flattering, especially towards women, like Greek mythology. I remember being struck by the fact that women were actually created as a curse to men. So uh, Prometheus had stolen fire from Zeus, and Zeus was a little angry about it. And so what he did is he created Pandora. And if you know the story of Pandora, she opened her what? Her box, right? And unleashed all kinds of evil into the world. And so you have this curse upon humanity, which then brought evil into the world. And, and so you go. So in Greek mythology, women were um, not trusted. They were commonly portrayed as devious, manipulative, hazardous to men, and deceitful. So again, these are some of the myths around the creation of women. Other cultures tended to, to build upon ideas like this, to have very disposable views of marriage. We could look at Roman culture around the time of the gospel, where men would often have a wife for, for bearing children and keeping a home, but it may be other women in their life for other pleasures. And so you can look through other cultures, and you can see where uh, marriage and, and, and women and relationships are, are, are not held very highly. 
you know, but as we ha have Israel here, you know, they're about ready to enter the promised land. God gives Moses this, this book of Genesis to give to them to understand origins and to know how their national life is going to be, to be built up. Um, right here at the beginning, he gives a vision of marriage. And it's important because how they viewed marriage would reflect their belief about God, their belief about uh, creation, and it would also be a foundation for their whole national understanding. They needed to see marriage as a gift. They needed to see men and women as equal co-partners with different roles and to see how that worked out in their national life. Now, many of the ancient views of marriage and sexuality have, have become popular again, maybe just in different ways, kind of repackaged today, especially ones from the East. You know, we've uh, regressed away from that helpful vision that we see in Genesis chapter 2. Especially today, many viewing marriage as unnecessary, relationships as disposable. And so when problems come up, uh, people are often willing to, uh, they're unwilling to work out their problems. Uh, they don't see value in them and there's a greater willingness to escape from them. But instead of seeking long-term relationships then, many younger people have opted for uh, thrill-seeking hookups instead. Um, of course, nationally, you know, we see the um, ending of marriage through divorce is, is, is commonplace. And even if divorce numbers seem to be shrinking, uh, many times, you know, especially the cynic in us, may wonder if divorce is decreasing just because uh, people aren't getting married to begin with and they're choosing to live together instead, but still with the same relational consequence. And so the consequences of declining emphasis in marriage, it's, it's clear. You know, the, the decline and the breakup of marriage and its foundation leads to growing poverty among those who are divorced, especially children. We see um, children who become deeply affected by the instability of their home and the divorce of their parents. Often, um, young people put off marriage in the pursuit of career, of money, of other pleasures, only to find that a good relationship is hard to find later. And delaying marriage unnecessarily keeps men from volunteering in the community. And as we get older, older seniors find themselves more alone than ever. Marriage is so important. It's really a foundation uh, of social order, but it's a foundation for us individually as well. You know, there's a, there's a problem of isolation and aloneness. And, and some of it comes from this very negative view of marriage. You know, but we see, as we look in Genesis 2, what a gift it was intended to be from God. As we look at the passage, we see that it's not good for the man to be alone and how it's good for us to be together with others, especially in marriage. As uh, Winston Smith said in one of the, your sidebars that you see there, he says, in marriage, the biggest obstacle to change is our attitude towards it. I think that's why we have Genesis chapter 2, God creating us for companionship, and we want to look at its uh, role in our own thriving. All right, so the first thing we want to look at is from verse 18 that we are created for companionship. We are created for companionship. I'm going to read verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. All right, so first, just some observations about our passage. Uh, this is the first time that God has said something is not good. Right? You can remember back to Genesis chapter 1, and six times he says something is good, and the seventh time he says it, he even says it is very good. And so what's going on here that uh, God would say something was not good? Well, 
One thing we don't believe is that there was something wrong with creation, something that was broken that needed to be fixed, as if God had made a mistake. No, um, it was very good. Remember that? Uh, but we believe that creation was simply, at this point, not complete. It was something which was incomplete. Uh, recently, I had to fix a pre piece of drywall. And, you know, I cut the piece out and I put the new piece in and, you know, and it's sitting there. And, and as, as I look at it, you know, it's really nice and flush and it, it's, uh, you know, I'm really kind of happy with how it looks. But I realize that it's, it's not good yet, right? Why is it not good? I mean, it needs to be painted. It's not finished. It's just this white thing that's on the wall here, this white square. You know, it's not good to have a job that is half finished. And so there's something which God needs to finish. And as great as... Adam was here. God identifies his aloneness as being not good. This wasn't his final creative purposes, and he still had more to do. And so companionship, it's, it's a very important part of being part of, of being created in God's image. Remember, God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's existed from all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you remember back to Genesis 1.26, he said, let us create man in our own image. When God is saying us and our, he's reflecting his own communal nature. One in essence, three in persons, and, and he decides to make man in that same image. Somebody made the point that the ability to communicate and uh, to work together in a project is something which makes uh, humanity unique from all the rest of creation. You know, scientists may point out that, you know, they seem like monkeys. They see monkeys um, using maybe a tool or, or, um, or, you know, getting together in groups and, and, and communicating in certain ways. But what they've never seen two monkeys ever do is to communicate together on a project they're going to build and carry a log in order to finish that project. You know, there's, you know, this ability to communicate a vision and to work it together is unique to people. It's something that's being uh, uniquely created in God's image. And so God says you're going to solve this problem of man being alone by creating a helper, creating a helper for him. We know where this is going to go, of course. We know that God is going to create his wife and to bring them together in marriage. And so we see that there is a social good that God has done. And his final verdict in that is that it is very good at the end of that sixth day. Now, I think that the application of this passage goes beyond marriage, but certainly not less than marriage. It, go, it goes beyond to speak the value of all sorts of relationships that we need. That's why this passage says something important to single people and to married people alike. You know, God created us to be together in community, and that community comes from more than just a spouse, but it comes from our friend, our children members of our church. I mean, it speaks to our need of counselors, of pastors, of financial advisors. It speaks to our need of doctors and scientists and civil government. Uh, we need plumbers, business investors, study partners, employees, and employers. The garden that we are given is rather large, especially in today's world, and we're limited in what we can accomplish. I mean, I am a big DIYer. You know, if I can figure out how to do something by watching enough YouTube videos, you know, I, I want to do it myself. But sometimes I have to realize that I really need help in doing things. I mean, I need help in fixing my car so I can spend adequate time with my family and not be busy in the garage um, all, all the time fixing these things. 
you know, I also need good advice. I need good mentoring. I need prayers and, and counseling. So, you know, I have people in my life that can help me with that. I read uh, yesterday that Robert Putnam in one of his books called Bowling Alone says, you know, one of the um, ways that people, especially men, can, expect, can extend their life expectancy is just simply by joining a group. So many men are alone and disconnected from others that, that they did some research on it and discovered that just by men joining a group and being around others more regularly would actually extend out the length of time that they would live. So by way of application, let me ask you, you know, is there some area of your life that you're trying to address by yourself in a time that you really need a helper? God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will create a helper. Now here, uh, God has a particular helper in mind, right? Eve, right? This, this first woman is going to be Adam's helper. And, and sometimes when we think about a helper, we uh, think that the helper person is not as important as the person they're helping. You know, we might think of a, of a daddy's little helper, right? When we have little babies and they have those cute little bibs. Um, we might uh, find a helper in a house or, or to tutor us in math. But often we think that the, that the helper is someone who's not as invested in the task as the person they're helping. Or uh, maybe they're not as valuable to the task. Especially in our day-to-day -day thinking, may, maybe someone look at the term of helper as a derogatory term when it speaks about women. When it talks, you know, we see it at time, and especially in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about the, the husband being head of his wife. And here we have the woman described as a helper. Is it a, a derogatory term? Well, I think the Bible, as we look at it as a whole, is certainly not a derogatory term. In fact, the Bible uses the term helper uh, as a reference to God himself. If you look at Psalm 54.4, we see one instance of this. It says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And, and God doesn't flinch at being called a helper. In fact, Jesus, when he's speaking about God the Holy Spirit, he speaks about the Holy Spirit as being helper. He says, I will ask the Father. In John 14, 6, he says, I will help the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Right? And so commentators, when they look at this term helper, you know, sometimes they say that this word could even be used to describe a deliverer, someone who delivers from great problems or even a savior. And in this case, what do we see Eve acting as? She was a helper to deliver Adam from the monumental task of caring for this garden all by himself. Right? That's, she was helping him from this work, delivering him from doing it by himself. And she was necessary for Adam to fulfill his purpose. Remember the task that God gave Adam in the garden? He told him to work it and to keep it. We see that in Genesis 2.15. Work that garden and keep it. Or you can think about the creation ordinance of Genesis 1.28, where it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we know that Adam was not going to be able to fulfill this purpose by himself. The world is a very big place. It was an impossible task to do on his own. And that's not even speaking about the act of procreation. We need help to do that as well. And so God created a helper for him. Now when God created Adam by himself, he created him alone, right? Why did he create him alone? I think it's to prove a point. It's to prove a point that we all need to see. You know, Adam needed to see that he needed someone else. And God wants us to see that as well. The calling that God gave to Adam to tend his garden was too much for him. 
And so are the tasks we have before us. We can't do everything by ourselves. And so what God says, this helper is going to be fit for him. Fit for him. That's how he finishes out that verse 18. She was going to be a compliment to him. Uh, she was going to help him do this work of the garden. Now, one of my um, own personal takeaways of the passage is in understanding this idea of helper and fit for him, in understanding other things the Bible says about submission. You know, it says, wives, submit to your husbands, or the Bible talks about submission in various ways. And many times the world resists the idea of submission because it makes somebody feel, makes us feel inferior to someone else. Sometimes we react for good reason. We have seen authority abused. Uh, we have seen submission forced upon others unwillingly. We've seen how it could be used against our own dignity and value. But as we look at submission, as we understand from the Garden of Eden, you know, what we see here is that, first of all, what did God give Adam? But he gave him a mission, right? He gave him a task that he was to do, to work this garden and to keep it. And then he gave him a helper who's come alongside with all of her giftedness, with all of her qualities, with all of her skills, with all of her wonder and all of her strength to come alongside and to apply herself to that same mission that God had given him. She was going to have children, yes, but she was going to help him in tending that garden and taking dominion together. When two people are married, they take on that same mission together. And just as God gave um, Adam the mission in this garden, I believe that men are called to know God's mission for themselves and their families. A man must know what his mission is. He needs to know his mission before God, his mission for his family, um, his mission in life, financial, in his work, those things. You know, so we think about what are the things that he, he needs to know what he's called to do. Before marriage, many women, they're going to look at a man with the question, you know, can I put my gifts into his mission? Are my gifts compatible with the things that he wants to do? Will he, will he use my gifts? Will he pay attention to my interests? Will the things that I offer be able to contribute to the things that he has before him? Does he have a sense of purpose? Does he know he's entering a marriage for a reason? Does he keep the interests of others in mind? Is he actively seeking God? Is he willing to engage me in the fulfillment of that purpose? Many women in asking uh, whether they're going to be comfortable in marriage, you know, they need to see a man who must have these things in place first. And young men, you can see why it's essential for you to have that sense of who you are, to have a sense of conviction, to have some skills, to know who God has called you to be and to pursue those so that you can show young ladies that you are, at, you know, what you are asking them to sign up for as they come to be part of a relationship with you, and even to move ahead in marriage. If you're married, you know, we remember that God has called us together to work on a mission that God has for us. We have a garden to tend. We have a spiritual life to develop. Working together in our financial life. Working together on behalf of our children. But there's a knowledge of where we're going and have a willingness to engage each other on it and accomplishing that together. So we see, first of all, this gift of, of Eve and our, our need of companionship. The second thing we want to look to is our need of the gifts of others. We need the gift of others. So once God says he's going to create a helper fit for Adam, he goes through what you know, might otherwise look as an incredibly fruitless search to find a partner for him. Maybe you know that guy in your life. It's a fruitless search to find this partner for this one. But um, God goes through this task for Adam. We see it in verses 19 and 20. Um, God brings all these created animals to Adam to see if any of them would be a fit partner. And so while none of the animals fit, we know it's not a fruitless thing because there's something important that's going on here. It really shows something about Adam's incredible intellectual ability. I mean, he names the animals. 
He shows his understanding of their nature. He shows his role of the image of God, that is dominion over them, to be able to, to name them, to give them names according to what they're like. There's a level of authority in the ability to name something. And in this, God shows one of man's jobs for the world is to name things, to classify them, to describe God's creative purposes for them. Notice that, that God did not give the name to the animals. I mean, that was something that he left for Adam to do. And there's so much that God gives us to do in the world, to create, to design, to name as part of our creative powers. But in the end, you know, nothing in creation could be the helper that Adam needed. I mean, do you wonder why God would go through this whole process in order to, to, you know, come to the conclusion that he did. I mean, I'm sure that he knew that none of those animals would be a fit helper for Adam. Well, again, I think he does this to make a point. It's to show Adam and all of us what a special gift that Eve would be in his life. And to show that nothing in all creation would be able to meet Adam's relational need like Eve would be able to. People often think that creation can solve um, all the needs of aloneness. Um, maybe sometimes people don't want to do it in relationships. They don't want vulnerability, and they don't want to do it in marriage. But, they, um, but what we see here is that human companionship is God's original intended design. There's, there's no other way around that. So we can't artificially uh, use a computer to, um, to, to, to be this, this helper that we need, um, whether it's video games or social media. I mean, robots would only be able to simulate what we need. And, and pornography is one of the great lies of personal connection because it steals intimacy rather than building it. I mean, we need people in the flesh and blood, not just created things. So Adam needed someone like him, someone who is fit for him, one who is complementary, meaning that she's similar, but that she has different gifts to fulfill the, the purposes that God has for them to accomplish together. You know, they're, they're a puzzle together. I mean, they're of the same puzzle, but they're different pieces. And so they're going to fit together in that way. So in verses 21 and 22, God creates Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In this case, we, we see some important things. First, that she is created from uh, the same material as the man is. That means she's created in the image of God. She's a full image bearer uh, of God by herself. And the second thing we see is that she was fashioned by God's own hand, just like Adam was, by God's hand and, and also by the same substance. Again, God's showing um, you know, that she is an image bearer as well. And in all this, we see her immense value. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, once said, the woman was made out of a rib on the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's Matthew Henry in his commentary on the Bible. Value. Once God had created her, uh, we see the Lord God bring her to the man, right? We see God is this great matchmaker. He was the one who created her, and now uh, she was the gift to be recognized. Later on, as we read on in Genesis, we're going to see uh, families send people, you know, hundreds of miles just to find a wife for their sons. Today, men and women might find a spouse at school or church or even through an online dating service. But behind all of these things, we know that God is the matchmaker and his intention is to, to bring people together for his good purposes. 
And what was Adam's response to this gift as God brought her to him? We see in verse 23, we see his joy. You know, these are the very first words that are uttered by a human being in the Bible. And it's interesting to see his first words are rejoicing over his wife. I mean, it makes me think that, man, maybe we should do that more. If that's his first words, maybe they can be more of our words, right? I mean, his first words are a song. They're a poem, to be exact. Uh, we see the first love song here as he speaks about the wonder of his wife with this just outburst. Then man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He sees her similarity, but he also sees her differences. You know, first he sees that she's made of the same stuff as he is, just with different qualities. They have the same bones. They have the same flesh. She's not like the animals. Uh, she has been taken out of him. The word in Hebrew for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. And so even in their names, you know, he recognizes the similarity and the difference at the same time. So you notice in the song, they are built for companionship, not just for procreation. Adam enjoys his wife, and their relationship is beyond children, but it's one of, of mutual enjoyment together. One of the keys to happiness in marriage is the ability to receive someone who's different than us. It's the ability to celebrate differences instead of letting differences divide us. You know, we celebrate those things. Your spouse is a fit, fit partner for you which means you have similarity and differences. And we have to learn to give thanks for both of them, the similarities and the differences together. And our ability to be happy within our marriage with those similarities and differences, it depends on what we focus on. If we're thankful for the gifts and the contributions of someone else, then we're much more likely to be happy and to find a satisfying marriage relationship. So Adam created a companion that was fit for him because we need the gifts of others. Verse 3, or our third point that we want to look at today, our third point is that we're created for connection and closeness. Created for connection and closeness. So after this outburst in verse 24, we see the paradigm of marriage that's laid down in verse 24. The, the principle of leaving and cleaving. That's the old King James version. Leaving and cleaving. A man uh, leaves his father and mother and he holds fast to his wife and then the two become one flesh. That's what we see in verse 24. It's the establishment of a marriage. It's made through vows. It's a declaration, a public declaration of their union together. We see that first marriage ceremony. We're reminded here that marriage is not a contract. It's not something that's just maintained by emotions. It's a, it's a relationship that's based on a promise. It's a relationship that's based on a promise, and that's where it becomes a covenant. Very wrapped up with our own word. Wrapped up with our own integrity. The things that we promise that we're going to do together. It's formed to be an exclusive relationship. That's why he leaves in order to cleave with his wife and is formed to be a permanent relationship describing that they're going to hold fast, be bound to one another. The foundation of marriage relationship then isn't love, but it's the commitment of love. It's the covenant of love. Only the covenant promise that's made through vows can sustain marriage as God intended because we know how feelings come and go for us. I remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he once said this, he said, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Hear that again. It's not your love that sustains the marriage, 
but from now on it's the marriage that sustains your love. Under the safe umbrella of this covenant commitment that the two people make with each other, it provides a safe place for marriage to grow and to develop in what God intended to be. And so in this, we see this relationship is so different than any others, don't we? I mean, we don't choose our parents. We don't choose our kids. But our marriage partner, that's the one family relationship that we choose. And in that, there is enormous risk at one side, but there's also a wonderful power to change you. Tim Keller says in The Meaning of Marriage, he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to fully know and to be truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And so what does God do here? Is that he takes these two uh, people and he makes them, he says, into one flesh. He brings them together in some mysterious and, and in a wonderful way. They, they share a mission together under God. They live together for the same purpose. They share children together. And they'll also share the deepest level of intimacy. And so if marriage is at the center of human flourishing, there's no doubt that marriage would also come into some of the greatest attacks by the devil himself. If this one flesh union would be done for the glory of God and the benefit of people, if it's done for this, if it's critical for the stability of humanity, a nation, and the good of the church, it is no wonder that the devil would attack it most vehemently. And so marriage is attacked a number of ways. I mean, the, one of the ways that people, that it's attacked is when people don't leave their old ways of life to enter into mutually satisfying relationship. Right? We see in Genesis 2.24 that a man will leave his father and his mother, but there's other things he's going to leave. He's going to leave his selfishness. He's going to leave his focus on himself. He's going to leave his single-minded uh, living way. He's going to consider how to live together in a life that's the honor and glory of God with somebody else. Marriage is weakened by selfishness. It's weakened by abuse. Uh, and marriage is strongest where self-sacrificial mutual love and commitment to care are present. Another way that the devil attacks marriage is by challenging the idea of cleaving to a spouse, or, or you know, that's what we see in verse 224 when it talks about them holding fast. This often happens through conflict and the dissolution of marriage through divorce. Jesus speaks about divorce in Matthew 19, 3 through 9. Um, the Pharisees once came up to him and they tested him. This was a test. They said, is it lawful divorce one's wife for any cause? So he's dealing with divorce. Notice what Jesus does in answering the question. He goes back to Genesis, to what the passage we're looking at, what God has done. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so he bases in creation, then he answers the question. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That means from Genesis, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And so we see this broad principle laid down that divorce is contrary to God's creative purposes and that lifelong marriage is God's plan and purpose for the human race. 
I mean, it's clear here what Jesus says in Matthew 19, that there are certain behaviors like sexual morality, which so undermine the marriage covenant that it can break the covenant. But our posture is that marriage should work for the duration of our lives. I think that's what most people, 99% of people, uh, think when they get married. Marriage is entered into with a sense of permanence. They get married with no intention of it ending. And sadly, it sometimes does, but most of, it do, most of us don't want it at the beginning. But the question is for us whether two people, whether both of them are willing to work and to do what it takes to make that relationship work. And so we also see marriage this weekend when national laws undermine it, when matters like same-sex marriage are held forth as legitimate alternatives to God-designed heterosexual marriage. You know, so we see marriage is not just a matter of personal preference, but it becomes something that's important for the good of the church, for national stability, and the stability of one another. I mean, as God's design is broken, it affects so many people. It, it affects uh, a nation's health, financial stability, it affects religious liberty, um, and it denies the sanctity of God's creative purposes. And the choice to homosexual marriage is not just an individual choice, but affects many people around us, especially children. And as marriage comes under greater attack, we need to, rem- to remember the, uh, the purpose of God in marriage. And how wonderful it was intended to be. And I think the wonder of, of God's creative purposes is seen in verse 25. And this really has to be the climax of the, of the entire creation narrative. I mean, it shows what every person longs for and hungers for. It's ability to be in the presence of somebody in security, to be who they are, to be vulnerable, and then to be accepted. Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is not about physical nakedness and those things, not primarily, um, but it's really a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of being one flesh together. It's the creation as it was intended to be. And it shows how much has been lost since sin came into the world. Now, there is a physical nakedness that's in there, and you could uh, consider that their, their courage to be there shows that there's no risk in that relationship, and it's still passionate. Adam is a safe person. Eve is a safe person. Adam is willing to put his trust in Eve, and Eve is willing to put her trust in Adam, and there's no shame in it. There's just joy. There's a full exposure of the same of another person. Uh, there, there's a full exposure before someone else. They know each other without judgment, without condemnation. Isn't that something we desire in, the li- in this life? This is what we look forward to in our closest relationships, especially in marriage, is a, a trusting and joyful relationship. And how often are we unwilling to accept another person for how they are? How often does our own sin get in the way so that we hurt someone or we tear down trust? How often do we want to keep ourselves from others so we don't have to trust them, that we don't have to be vulnerable? Oneness is a lifelong work of marriage as we work towards greater closeness and intimacy together. So there will always be hindrances, but we're working towards the vision of Adam and Eve as they were created in the garden. It's a great reminder to us also that there, we shouldn't be looking outside of marriage for the blessings and pleasures that only marriage can bring. Really, there's some things and some blessings and privileges that only come from the ability to be vulnerable in front of one another. And people try to avoid that, and they avoid it through a number of ways. I'll describe some of them here. One way is through pornography. I mean, there is a false intimacy in pornography. 
or people seeking the pleasures of acceptance but without the work of developing a real relationship with someone. Or consider sex outside of marriage. Here, there's a desire to find the blessings of marriage without wanting to make the commitment of marriage. People want to, to live together. They want to have intimacy together, but out of the bounds of the marriage covenant. And when they do, besides leaving themselves vulnerable to um, emotional or, or physical sicknesses, um, it's to settle for less trusting relationships because there's no true commitment. It begins to affect us. There's a willingness to make a commitment that why not just make that commitment and get married according to God's design. Many today are looking for intimacy in all kinds of differently gendered relationships. But that's also contrary to God's design. While there may be a hunger for relationship and companionship and to be understood, it was meant to be enjoyed through the diversity of heterosexual relationships, which alone can capture the beautiful design of God taking two different kinds of people and making them into one flesh. The wonder of being naked and unashamed came because while they were created biologically different, they saw they were able to, they were able to accept one another. Homosexual relationships cannot capture that. The Bible in many other places talks about other sexual sins. First uh, Corinthians speaks about sex with prostitutes. You know, the Bible speaks about adultery. You know, and that's often seen as people look for some level of intimacy, but refusing the commitment of love and, and, and the bounds of marriage. And the one marriage that you're supposed to be vulnerable and trustworthy in, we violate that in a relationship with someone, in, in someone else who we have no sense of commitment to. Instead of love, it's a settling of a transaction. You know, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. So we can't find the blessings and pleasures of marriage without being in marriage. It's just, it's artificial. It's a, it's a copycat. It's, it's, it's a false, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a false attempt to give something that only marriage was able to give. Now, before I finish, I want to speak about the ultimate fulfillment of marriage. And, and to do that, I want to turn to Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 5, that's because as good as... Um, God created to be, marriage was not ultimate. God created this whole marriage thing to show us a picture of a greater marriage that's to come, and that's the marriage between Christ and his church. You can see that in Ephesians 5, 22 through 27. It starts off saying this, Wives, submit your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That intimacy that we see in Genesis 2.25 is an intimacy that Christ provides for his church. We see it in the way that it describes Jesus being a true husband, one who is given to love and self-sacrifice, one who's covered our sins so that we can stand before him and clothed in his righteousness, unashamed because of what he's given to us. And this is important to us because whether we're married or whether we're single, whether we enjoy marriage right now, whether our marriage is a struggle, or whether we long for it, uh, or whether we... Um, content living without it, you know, all these things need to be considered in light of Christ's relationship with the church. That's where we were created um, to be. That's where we're created to be a part of. The church is called to be a true bride. 
church is called to live in submission and to live for God's kingdom. Through her worship and praise, she becomes the glory of her Savior who died for her and rose again. And so if we look to the consummation of the ages, we have a reminder that when Jesus comes back and when the world as we know it ends, at that time there will be a great wedding feast when the people of God are invited to come to eat with God himself as the bride. Revelation 19, 6-9 speaks of it. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. A life that glorifies God and a marriage that glorifies God will be grounded in the love that Jesus has for his church. And so what about you? Have you built your life on the love that Jesus has for his church? I mean, Jesus is the one who takes our guilt and our shame away. He's the one that restores us so that we can look at God face to face, totally exposed, and still know of his love and care. He is the one who, when we were in our filth of sin and when our work was too much, when we we're at our most desperate state, he saw that it was not good for us to be alone, and he sent his son in the world to forgive our sins and reconcile us to God. We see this Jesus who gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can fulfill the purposes that God has for his life. I mean, this is what Jesus has done for his people. This is what Jesus has done for us. Would you believe in him? Would you trust in him? Would you leave your life of sin? Would you leave the world of flesh and the devil and cleave to him that he would become your all in all? Would you cleave to him that he would be your savior? Come to Christ and know salvation. And once we know Christ, we know his church. It's because we're not created to be alone, but to be part of life-enriching relationships. And we need those friendships. And for many of us, we find uh, so much in a marriage relationship, but that's not our final or only way. It's in the church of Christ that we find our connection with Christ and with others. A few weeks ago, I, I started this Facebook post, and I started off by saying something like, marriage is hard, but it's worth working through. And it's true. I mean, marriage is worth working through. But uh, my wife came to me and she said, well, do you think our marriage is hard? You know, and I looked at it, and you know what? I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a good thing for me to think through. You know, because she reminded me in it that, you know, our marriage actually isn't particularly hard. You know, I want to say, have we worked at it? Yeah. Have we had ups and downs? We certainly have had ups and downs. Um, you know, but every bit of work that we've done, you know, has resulted in a happy marriage. You know, we've been increasingly able to be vulnerable with each other. It's definitely increased our ability to seek the Lord together and, and, and to search him out together. You know, and so I wanted to encourage you with that. I mean, some marriages may be hard. There may be a hardness that, that you're, you're facing. And it is working through. But marriage is a good, and we have to always remember that. Marriage is a good, and there's always room to grow. And as we trust in the Lord, 
you know, and we look to him in it, we know that we can have joy in it. And as you're struggling, you know, the answer to your struggles is not to give up and to start over with someone else. No, the answer is to continue to work through it, the greater growth and the greater joy together as a couple. I mean, it's possible, it takes time, you know, but, but that's the way that God is working in us and through us. For good relationships to throw, we need to be restored to the only one who can really satisfy our need for a relationship. To know the one who can really humble us and still teach us to love, and that's Jesus. Do you know him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we were not created to be alone, but you created us to live in relationships. We need them. Father, forgive us for the ways that we um, sinfully guard and protect ourselves Help us for the way that we sinfully push people off who need us as well. Father, forgive us for the way that we resist fellowship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, the most important relationship that we have is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, to believe in him, to cleave to him, and to know the salvation that he brings. And thank you, God, that as he brings us into his church, God, we have that great joy and that forward time that we look to, Father, of that great marriage supper of the land when we shall be as a church united ultimately and finally and perfectly with him. Father, we do pray for our marriages that you strengthen them according to God's design. We thank you for this perfect design which is laid out here. It's a perfect design which we continue to work towards, but we know because of sin that we fall short of in so many ways. And so we need your grace. We need your help. We need your hope. But we're thankful, God, for the joy that we get to experience in it and the way that you use it to change us and to make us more in the image of Christ. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand together in our